He needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Quite a day, quite a week, my friends. Welcome, Team Buck, to Buck Sexton with America Now. Good to have you here in the Freedom Hut. Appreciate getting a chance to uh, hang out with you. Much going on in the news all week, including today. And the uh, the aftermath of that Trump clinic and how to deal with the media yesterday still goes on. You could tell that some of the some of the revered journalists out there in a in the fourth estate they were the fourth estate or the fifth column. It depends on who you talk to. Uh, they were trying to uh, rebound after Trump let him have it. Very entertaining stuff yesterday. We played for you some of that audio. Um, and now I think we see that there is a counterpunch. We have a counterpuncher in place in the White House because the beginning of the week was all uh, the Flynn resignation, Russia, Kremlin. Oh, no, we have a traitor as the commander in chief. That's what they were saying. Not necessarily in those words, but it's certainly the implication Stories about how the intelligence community can't give the president information because he'll just run over to his buddies at the Kremlin and hand it to them. A scurrilous charge, uh, but one that they were making under the uh, under the guise of journalistic enterprise. And they were using anonymous sources. And now here we are one day removed from the Trump press conference where he set the record straight on all that and set the media straight, too. Feels a bit different now, doesn't it? Uh, But that's not to say that they have changed any of their ways. One of the more interesting moments today in the news cycle came when the Associated Press uh, put out a story that claiming a White House aide as a source, I'd have to wonder who in the White House is is going to leak going to leak information damaging to the Trump administration right now. That would seem to be a very unwise career move. Um, but they were the Associated Press broke a story earlier this morning that the Department of Homeland Security was going to use the National Guard to round up undocumented immigrants. Now the DHS has come out and said that this isn't true. That there is. No basis for this in terms of an official memo that DHS Secretary John Kelly, whom the AP claimed wrote the memo, did not write the memo. Now, I have to ask you, what are we to call this reporting? What are we supposed to say about this? They would, of course, claim that this isn't fake news. This is an honest, good faith error. Or perhaps... They would say the White House is lying entirely and DHS is lying. But can't we at least say this is false news? Seems to me to be fake, but it's inaccurate. It is false. And yet they ran with it. We can also look at this and say, is it beneficial or hurtful to the Trump administration? Now, what's fascinating is I do think there are people 
who advocate for using the National Guard on the southern border to protect the border, uh, not necessarily as a deportation force. But clearly they went with this because it feeds into the narrative. The narrative is that Trump is soon to be Hitler. He's not quite Hitler. They'll admit that. Even the craziest lefty will admit that. And I mean lefty as in politics, not as in left-handed. You know the term sinister, which we all know what that means, comes from left-handed, believe it or not. And I believe that also comes from how if you were left-handed, they would sometimes search. And those of you would, uh, many of you would know the, the biblical reference here. They would search on your left side because you would draw your sword with your right hand. But if you were left-handed, you might carry a weapon on your right side and would not be searched. Sina uh, uh, is Latin, I believe, of the left. Anyway, left-handed people. Sinister. So lefties, political lefties, uh, they would admit that Trump is not yet Hitler. It's going to be a while before he becomes full-blown Hitler. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad that we've at least established that. But they think that all their worst fears about Trump are coming true. And let me come back to that thought in just a moment here, because that's that I'm not taking that the way that many would. I'll come back to the left's worst fears in just a second. Uh, But they thought they had the administration not on the ropes this week, but certainly dazed. They thought they scored some very important points against Donald Trump and his inner circle. And then that press conference yesterday, and then all of a sudden today, Trump is down at Boeing and he's speaking about jobs and the things he's going to do. And the American people, or at least the American people who voted for Trump or are willing to give Trump a chance, they see this and they say to themselves, well, this is what matters. This is what's important. I don't really care what General Flynn said to the vice president. That's a matter for the White House to handle, and they did. But, of course, the narrative continues on that Trump is a failure, that this is terrible, that everything that's happening is awful. And so, of course, when the Associated Press, perhaps operating off of a single member, this is the Associated Press, AP wires, which are supposed to be the basis for Many news stories across the whole spectrum, right? Many organizations pay for AP Newswire feeds just to keep them up to date on all the incoming stories from around the world. AP is supposed to be the object, as objective a news source as you will find. Gold standard for journalists, whether you believe that or not, I leave that to you. But they ran with this National Guard story based off of what could be one leak. DHS has said that it's a lie. And now, whom whom do we believe? Is this fake news? Well, it certainly is damaging the administration, thinly sourced, and has been repudiated. So we either believe the Associated Press, or we believe the general, who is currently the DHS secretary. So, I'll, I'll leave that as well to your discretion and judgment. But they, they lost no time in the left deciding that this week was... When we saw laid bare that Trump is a massive failure. In fact, you had look MSNBC. I tell you this. It's fine. They want to wear their Che Guevara T-shirts and live in Brooklyn and hang out with all the hipsters. Whatever. That's cool. They can do that. At least they're open about it. It's not my it's not my jam, but they tell you who they are and how they do things, which is more honest than a lot of the other journalistic outfits out there. But you got Maddow who realizes that she has to get to the left of CNN, she has to get to the left of the New York Times, because otherwise, what purpose does MSNBC serve? 
there isn't some progressive redistribution obsessed collectivist administration to support quite the opposite so they've got to go far left hard left and maddow does not disappoint let's play the audio the the personnel debacles and the serious scandals that already attend to this less than one month old presidency are really, I mean, without hyperbole, they are unlike anything that we have ever seen at the start of a presidential term. I mean, nobody wants to see the United States of America fail. But if you want to know what it looks like when a president fails, in every conceivable way, in every conceivable measure, this is what it looks like when a president fails in every way. In every way, huh? I don't know how somebody who, of course, we are, we're all supposed to be very impressed that she's a Rhodes Scholar. I will tell you this. I've known a number of Rhodes Scholars personally in my life, oftentimes greatly overrated and not nearly as impressive as they think they are. That has been my experience. I'm just saying. I'm keeping it real. That's what I do here in the Freedom Hut. But yeah, she's a Rhodes Scholar. She's supposed to be a top-tier intellectual. The president's failing in every way. Is that really the case? Interesting. He's gotten through all but... One of his cabinet nominees, he has managed to do, and we'll get a, the counterpoint to this position that Rachel Maddow has put forward in just a few moments. I'll get back to it. Uh, but he's signed an executive order dealing with immigration. They're going to sign another one this week. It's not going to have to go through the courts. I think they're going to narrow the focus down next week so that a federal judge will really have to expose himself as just a wildly partisan activist without any adherence to the law whatsoever if they're going to combat that executive order. And then you look at the repeal of Obamacare and tax reform, and here's the truth of what's happening in this country. And it's just it just begun to hit me this week that this is why they're so upset. This is why they're, oh, we've got Tom Friedman saying, the New York Times, I, I, forget about Rachel Maddow. She's she's far left. MSNBC is honest about its quasi-love of communism and hatred of America. They're honest about it. I'm kidding. Not really. Kind of kidding. Maybe a little. But you have Tom Friedman, a celebrated columnist for the New York Times, saying that the election of Donald Trump was comparable to an act of war. Play that. The election of Donald Trump on that date in November, really comparable to an act of war. I think that um, uh, it's one of the most uh, dangerous and profound things that's happened to our country, uh, certainly in my lifetime, because what is it that, that actually distinguishes? What, what are our crown jewels? Um, it's our, our, the way we rotate power, uh, our institutions, our constitution, how, how we conduct elections. And a outside power, um, according to our top intelligence agencies and the FBI uh, intervened in this election. You got Tom Friedman, one of the most overrated columnists on the planet, by the way, both in terms of his writing and his intellect. But he's saying that the, the president is really illegitimate. That's what he is saying. Earlier in the week of the New York Times and others writing stories about how they couldn't. And, and the, look, the Wall Street Journal went with this one, too. And I was disappointed that they did. Usually the Wall Street Journal is much more sound in what it writes in this, but they're writing that the president, according to sources inside the intel community or former U.S. officials, they're keeping it as broad as possible so that we can't know, they're holding back information from Trump because he's a traitor. That's what they're saying. And this level of hatred is 
really a form of insanity. It's not normal. It's not rational. It's not based in any logical policy opposition. They truly hate on a deep and personal level this president. And here's what I've realized. And I want all of you to realize it too. They don't hate him because he might destroy America. They don't hate him because he's a fascist. He's going to become Hitler. He's a a Nazi, a neo-Nazi. They don't hate him because he's going to round up the uh, illegal immigrants or that he's anti-LGBTQ. Or That's not really why they hate him. They hate him because he might be successful. They hate him because he might change the rules and he might prove to the American people that there is another way and that his way works and that his ideas and the ideas that he represents when implemented, make the lives of many Americans, millions, tens of millions of Americans, markedly better. And we become a stronger country for it. And that would be such a repudiation of these beliefs and ideological positions and posturing that we see from the left that nothing could upset them more than to be proven wrong. And that is why they are hysterical. That is why they're so full of hate and so angry. Because he might just show that what they've all been believing this whole time was really a lie. All right, team, we'll be right back. All right, Buck Sexton with America Now continues. And we, my friends, have a new EPA head. Woo! Party! All the EPA is where the party's going to be because they're going to take it. And make it much less powerful in your life. It's going to be amazing. Pruitt confirmed by a Senate vote of 52 to 46 party line. Uh, No surprise there. And there's this recognition on the left. Wait a second. Obama didn't pass any really important climate legislation. He could have, by the way. Don't ever let them get away with this. They'll act like, oh, Obama loved the environment so much. Hmm. Interesting, because when he had control of the House and the Senate in 2009, 2010, did he pass it? Was there any important legislation on the climate that was I mean, what I mean, important? now they'll say something was important, but anything that really mattered. Why was it? Why, why was there such a need to do this through executive order only? Oh, that's right. There are Democrats, senators and congressmen. There are Democrats who live in states where the energy sector is important. There are Democrats who live in places where deciding that you're going to force people to put solar panels on their houses is not necessarily popular where people want cheap energy and they recognize that this whole climate change going to destroy everything is a ruse. Okay. But we have this new EPA head Pruitt. He's been confirmed and he was state attorney. He's a yeah. State attorney general for Oklahoma. And he's sued the EPA a bunch of times in the past. So he knows how the EPA does what it does, and he's already gone toe-to-toe with them. You've got people inside the EPA lobbying against Pruitt. That's going to be awkward. What are they going to do now? This guy runs the place. Not a good idea, usually, when someone's probably going to be your boss to make a lot of noise about how that person is unqualified for the job. You certainly wouldn't do this in the private sector. Oh, that guy's going to be the new CEO. I hate him. I think he's terrible. Hmm. It's a good way to get your uh, your walking papers. But nonetheless, here we have Pruitt, new EPA head. 
And uh, he is, I, I was reading through this New York Times piece on this whole situation. Of course, they're very upset about this. And they have all, and so I think the Daily Beast also had a, oh no, this is all New York Times, pardon me. And they're wondering, what's he going to do? Pruitt, Trump's choice, this is from the New York Times piece, Trump's choice for EPA administrator is expected to begin attacking Obama's environmental legacy using courtroom drama, foot dragging, and an upending of how EPA treats the scientific consensus on climate change. Always fun to talk about this. Consensus is not science. The scientific consensus for a long time was, as you know, that the sun revolved around the earth, right? The scientific consensus for a long time on any number of issues was, well, wrong. But it changed. It changed because someone could prove something. You can have a whole room of scientists, and I'm I'm butchering the uh, the quote from Einstein right now, but he more or less said that it only takes you can have a room full of people saying one thing, but it only takes one of them to prove me wrong. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what the consensus is. They have to offer up proof. It has to be repeatable, and it shouldn't be free from constant inquiry and testing and retesting of assumptions and. Looking at the original hypotheses, this is that's all basic scientific method stuff. This is like seventh grade science class. But we're supposed to just cave to the consensus. The consensus is what's driving all this total and utter nonsense. But they're upset because they figured that under a Hillary administration, they could continue doing things like allowing the EPA to regulate CO2 in the air, pretending that CO2, carbon dioxide, is a pollutant. Uh, the Democrats stayed up all night on the Senate floor in order to show their anger at the Pruitt nomination and soon-to-be confirmation. Um, and they wanted Mitch McConnell. I got Mitch McConnell's getting it done on the nominees here for the most part. You got to give credit where it's due. And people, I, I think it's really easy to talk about how terrible Mitch McConnell is. But so Mitch McConnell is uh, managed to get this vote done before. Pruitt had to release 3,000 emails related to his communications with the fossil fuel industry. The, the Look, the left is grasping here. They're trying to find something. They're trying to find some means of undermining this candidacy, uh, this candidate for the EPA, who's now the EPA guy. And they are really upset because they have somebody here who they think is far too friendly to the fossil fuel industry. Well, I think this is, I think this is going to be great. It'll be really interesting to see as well if he begins to root out some of the sketchy dealings of the EPA, we know there are some senior EPA administrators who were using emails to hide their correspondence. We know it's a highly politicized agency full of progressive left wing Democrats. And he's going to go in there. I'm hoping not just with a, with a scalpel, but with a chainsaw and he's going to tear this bureaucracy up. And make sure that it only does things that really protect the environment and clean water and clean air. Not that pretend to under the guise of collectivism. All right, we got more coming up. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. 
All right, Team Buck, we got phone lines open, 844-900-2825. Dutch in Mississippi on the WBUV. Great to hear from you, sir. How you doing, young man? I'm all right, sir. Thank you for calling in. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Benghazi. They okay. tried to get uh, up in there and um, uh, security in there to protect those people for well over a year. I think that was planned. I think Obama and Hillary planned that. And they knew that was going to happen. Because the English pulled out their, all their people, yet we left ours there. And I think the four people that were killed was murder. And I think it should be declassified and investigated to find out just really how much and who was involved in that. Well, well, Dutch, I've got to tell you that the four people who were killed were, were murdered, but they were murdered by terrorists who were part of Ansar al-Sharia, which is a jihadist group That's based right. in based in Benghazi. I, I, I can't say that I would uh, I'd agree. And, and honestly, I would need you to explain to me why you'd ever think that Hillary would. I mean, this uh, forget about the moral question for a second. This caused enormous headaches for their administration. So, Dutch, I appreciate you calling in from uh, WBUV Mississippi. Shields High. All right, everybody, we're joined now by Ann Coulter. She is an 11-time best-selling author. She's a syndicated columnist. You all know her. Ann, thank you so much for calling in. Sure, good to be here, Bob. 12 with In Trump We Trust. Oh, I'm sorry, 12. Pardon me, 12 times New York Times best-selling author. I think on my sheet here it said 11. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell somebody they're in trouble. So um, your columnist week on the – and by the way, welcome to the syndicated, uh, nationally syndicated version of the Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you. First time with Ann. Um, so you signed to the Lamps Congress. I've been hearing back and forth on this all week about whether the Congress is, are they being deliberative and strategic or are they starting to lose their nerve? Which is it? I think it's even worse. I think they're, they're a majority of never Trumpers. I mean, we know that they, they were hysterical and opposed to Trump from through most of the campaign, looking at any excuse to bail out. And we also know what was it that allowed Trump to come along and, and sweep up first Republican primary voters and then general election voters, because neither political party, including my own, the Republican Party, would deal with the issues that Americans have been begging them to deal with, trade and most of all, I think, immigration. Um, they, they want to please Chamber of Commerce and their big donors. I, I mean, the Senate passed Rubio's amnesty bill. We know where their heart is on this stuff. Um, and they're just appalled that someone who hasn't spent his entire life, you know, climbing up the political ladder, starting as as some, you know, local local politician, making it to the state legislature, finally running for the House, maybe working for a senator, running for the Senate their entire lives. No, this guy just goes out, makes $11 billion, and suddenly becomes president. I think that drives them crazy, too. Now, they, they, you point out that they've, they've passed repeals of Obamacare already. Uh, Paul Ryan, if he doesn't go to sleep with a copy of the tax code, which I know is 70,000 pages and would probably be 10 feet high or whatever, but, you know, next to his bed, I don't know who does. Why does this have to take so long? Is, is there really an honest reason as to why, as you point out, 200 days for the repeal of Obamacare as well as to get something going on tax reform? I, I thought taxes were going to be, you, know, you could do it on a postcard and it's going to be all simplified. If it's simplified, why does it take so long? No, I think that's a great question. What are they doing? And when you try to figure out what they're doing, 
Um, I mean, how do we know from what we read or hear in the media? Most of their activity seems to be calling into the Washington Post and New York Times with anti-Trump quotes. And by the way, I should say there are about seven really fantastic members. Um, I should probably list them at some point while I'm bashing most of them. But most of them, they just they want to pat on the head from, from the Washington Post. They want to be called respectable by ABC, NBC, and CBS. They're going for the Nobel Peace Prize by being – I don't know if you saw um, today McCain is over in Europe – making hysterical comparisons of Trump to Hitler. Oh, come on. Come up with something new. Wait, McCain was McCain was comparing him to Hitler? That's insane. Well, he was did not use the word Hitler, but the answer is yes. It was, oh, growing authoritarianism. Oh, okay. We haven't, we haven't learned the, 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 the lesson of World War II. Well, apparently, I mean, you listen to the rest of the speech, apparently he thinks World War II was fought um, so that we could have wide open borders and free immigration, um, because that was that was his attack. America it won't be leading the light in the world anymore. No, we can't. We have to fix ourselves before we can, you know, be a light of freedom to the rest of the world. And, uh, Anne, I want to ask you, I know your, your 12th bestseller is In Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome, but your... 11th is the one that I think might tie in here to this New York Times piece um, on you know, Adios America. You have Mexican consulates uh, flooded with fearful immigrants. You have to read this New York Times piece down about four paragraphs or five paragraphs before they point out or they, they finally say. They don't make a big deal of it. I mean, we're talking about illegals here because you know, why, would, why would legal immigrants be fearful at all? And it says that the 50 Mexican consulates scattered throughout the United States are becoming uh, sort of war rooms for trying to keep illegals in this country. And you've got Peña Nieto, the president of Mexico, saying they'll spend $50 million on this. Isn't this Mexico subverting U.S. federal law? I'm confused. They're they're trying to help illegals stay in our country and using diplomatic facilities and Mexican government money to do it. No, this is shocking. Um, I guess I saw the headlines. I didn't read the article on that. I saw the links. I suppose it must have been on Drudge. Um, wow, they're spending money <laughs> to to defy United States law. Uh, well, that, that seems like an act of war to me. Let me give you the quote, Andrew. So last month, this is from the New York Times piece. Last month, Mexican President uh, Peña Nieto announced he would spend $50 million to pay for lawyers at every consulate to help people facing deportations. So they're, they're spending money to, to make it more difficult to send people illegal, who are here illegally out of the country. You know, we already have uh, one quarter of Mexico's population in this country, taken in just in the last few decades. At what point will it be enough? And by the way, look at President Nieto and see if he looks like your landscaper. No, the entire ruling class in, in Mexico, they're the Spaniards. They're, they're, they're whiter than the Palm Beach Polo Club. Um, but boy, they, they want to send their poorest Mexicans to us. And what about though the, the the Trump administration? I know there's been some uh, some of a du- something of a dust up this week because he said DACA and the children. What do you think he's going to do there? It's, it's not clear to me. Um, I assume he he will keep his promises. Um, I mean, the DACA thing is 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 a total scam. It isn't um, for, for one thing. One of the things that. The most important point Trump made on the entire immigration issue is, um, okay, we've spent, we've spent decades now hearing about the poor illegal. Can we hear about the poor American? 
Um, can we have a little time on what do Americans get out of this? How's their Social Security holding up with all of the Social Security going to 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 illegals and and housing aid and and food stamps and medical care? Um, no, this is forget the criminals coming across. Forget the rapists coming across. Um, there was just one I tweeted right before I called into you. Five illegals, or according to AP style. Five men living here in the United States illegally. That's AP style. You have to have as many syllables as possible. Yeah, you know, they just horribly um, kidnapped and, and savagely murdered a mother of four. Um, I just tweeted out that article. Even leaving that aside, this is expensive. We have our own poor people here in America. We have our own Americans who need jobs. And what's been great about Trump is he has rested the conversation to look at it look at it from the perspective of Americans, i.e. the people who elected him president. And I know you, you, you tweeted something out about Justin Trudeau, who I have to say he came across as, as pretty slick in the Trump press conference, or at least he behaved himself during the press conference. But this notion of Canada as the place, you know, bring us your tired, your poor, your hungry, oh, open borders, Canada, that is a complete lie. Canada has a point system. Canada has very strict controls on immigration and has a tiny illegal, immigra- illegal immigrant population, even as a percentage of the overall population as compared to this country. They're just social justice wimps. Yes, and it's been going on, I mean, for decades now. America has taken in legally, I'm not even talking about the illegals pouring across our border and not from our border into Canada. Um, We've taken in more refugees than the rest of the world combined. Not Canada! (laughs) So, you know, they could, even if they did everything Trudeau's pretending he's going to do, which is be you know, left-wing social justice warrior, we're opening opening up the borders, whomever wants to come. Even if he, you know, they have a few decades to go before they can come close to catching up to us. We're, we're full on, on our charity ward cases now. Um, but, you know, these DACA kids, most of them aren't even what the sad stories are. Um, Is this like the kids that were showing up at the border, how all of a sudden everybody was like 17? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I mean, you only have to allege that you were brought here as a child. How do you prove that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I wonder what the documentation... I mean, they're undocumented, aren't they, right. if you use the parlance of the left? So how do they prove this? Right. It really is just open open amnesty. And, you know, one of the things that's nice about Trump is that he does take America's side, but he's also very kind and compassionate, always talks about how he loves the Mexican people, for example. It's just that our, our leaders are having their lunches eaten. And I like the way he does that, and I think that's what he was doing with DACA, but there better not be, <laughs> there better not, yeah, okay, we'll have all the compassion in the world, but our compassion, number one, has to go to the American people. One more for you, Anne. I know you got to go enjoy your weekend, but I just want to ask you, this, this story that was run about the National Guard being deployed as an uh, immig- uh, illegal immigrant roundup force, the AP ran it, now the Trump White House is saying, the DHS secretary is saying it's nonsense. What do you make of this? I think it's a great idea now that the AP has suggested it. <laughs> Gosh. Fantastic. I hope, I hope Trump has noticed this. I mean, why not? That is what the National Guard is for, and especially with what you began this telling me about. They're using consulates on in, in a, located within our country to defy our laws. This is, we really, it's we, insane. I mean, you have to read this New York Times piece. It is, it is like obviously propaganda, but on top of that, it is breathtaking what Mexico is doing in this country. Yeah, we have just become the world's floor mat. And, and I'm supposed to be cheering that. Well, no, I think I'll take my own side in an argument.
Ann Coulter is the author of 12 New York Times bestsellers. Her latest is In Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome. Go check it out on Amazon. And thank you so much for making time. Great to have you. Good to talk to you, Buck. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton with America Now continues. We've got phones lit up. Let's take them. Ron in North Carolina. You're on the Buck Sexton Show, my friend. Welcome. Well, thanks, Buck. I appreciate it. Thank you. Getting right to what you were talking earlier about the article about the intelligence agencies not sharing, supposedly not sharing information with the president, Trump. Yeah. My take on that is probably that's going through not just the intelligence, but everything. How does he get around that? How does he, does he have to totally, I mean, literally clean house, like you were saying, with that? chainsaw not a hacksaw well you can't really clean house in the intelligence community because you it's not out in the open what the political affiliations of of each individual no. is first of all intel intel community is huge i mean it's it is huge uh it really is though it's enormous and so one especially when you add in the uh military intelligence agencies into it, it it's it's vast uh so this is a very small group of individuals and and I think you know they're trying to obscure this because the most the most obvious place for this to come from would be Obama appointees at DOJ maybe and elsewhere in the latter in the final weeks of Obama's presidency trying to just you know uh, make a problem make a big problem for the Trump administration. Right, and you're saying that you know like you were talking about the EPA earlier. That's going to be a lot easier to clean up. Well, I mean, imagine who goes to work for the EPA. A fair amount of them, I would assume. Look, I can say this. When I was CIA, I had no interaction with the EPA, so I don't know. There are some agencies that I know people. I spent time working there. I've been in the building. I've worked with them on projects. And, and, you know, so I know people. I knew State Department people well, for example. I don't know EPA people. But just based on the mission set, I think you can assume that there are a lot of folks at the EPA who, you know, all I can say is they're rooting for Walter Peck and Ghostbusters. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, you've seen Ghostbusters, right? Important. Yes. All right, good. Just making sure. You can't leave that one out, Ron. Yeah. But no, I don't know how you really clean it out. That's People keep bringing this up, and I know it's it sounds good, and I appreciate the enthusiasm behind it, but it'd be a very difficult thing to do, and I don't think it's even necessary. Right. I think that this becomes, once you put certain kinds of people at the top of these agencies and they set the tone well then we'll see you know then if there are people resigning if there are employees at epa and at doj and go down the list if they don't like it they can go but otherwise they're going to play ball or else they're going to be you know sanctioned and possibly fired so that's the way right. it's, that's the way it goes down. You, you can't sort of do this person by person thing, but it is interesting, isn't it? That, that part of the problem with the federal government is that it's so big that when people talk about reform, I don't think they understand that you know they're 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 trying to they're trying to deal with a needle and a stack of needles. If you know, what I mean. it's it's going to be really hard. It's not it's not easy. Exactly. Okay. Right. All right, Ron in North Carolina Shields High. Thank you for calling in, uh, Gloria in California. You are on Buck Sexton with America now. Hi. Hello. Yeah, I'm. I'm calling about the wall. Yes, ma'am. And I figured that if some companies would supply the material, get a write-off, 
let the welfare people, collecting welfare, let them do the work. I'm sorry, you're saying that people that are collecting welfare, I, I missed that for a second, people who are collecting welfare should build the wall? Yeah, let them get out there and work. How, do you remember, maybe you don't, you're probably too young, WPA years ago? Uh, I can't say that I, I remember that, but um, I, I don't I don't know if uh, the wall, first of all, the wall, I assume, would require some some skills and, and background, depending especially on what we're talking about. Uh, you need you need to know how to do construction. You, you I'm not sure that that's something you could just jump into right away. Um, I, I appreciate the sentiment. I mean, w- work instead of welfare. And I know that's a big part of the welfare reforms of the 90s. Yeah, but they, they would have supervision, of course. Yeah, but people who don't live near the near the Mexico, Texas or, or sorry, Mexico and, and southern U.S. border. Uh, they, they might not particularly want to have to go down there to go. To, you know what I mean? I think that now you're asking. They're telling people that if they want benefits, they're going to have to move and leave where they are, leave where they are, leave their families to get onto the wall. Um, I, I think the wall will create. Uh, obviously, it would be a big uh, employment opportunity, and there are ways that this would benefit um, benefit the local economy down there. There'd be a lot of construction jobs. It's a massive project. I mean, now they've already said that it's likely to cost more like i think I, the most recent number i saw was more like 25 billion that's pretty expensive you know you could probably get like a couple subway lines in new york for that that would go for about two miles but uh, glory in california thank you very much for calling in shields high and uh we got hour two of the buck sexton show is already upon us this is wild stuff this show flies by thank you so much for uh, being with me here in the freedom hunt 844-900 2825-844-900-BUCK is the phone number. Do give a call. We should chat, and we've got a lot more to hit. In the third hour today, we're going to get into a bit of a Freestyle Friday mode with some topics that, uh, well, you just got to sit and wait and see. It's going to be fun. Uh, So stay with me. We'll be back right after this break. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's That's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. All right, Team Buck, we are back. Thank you very much for being here. If you want to call in, Freestyle Friday will be upon us here shortly. 844-900-2825. We have Matthew Colkin as our guest now. He is a prominent immigration lawyer and partner at Colkin and Colkin. Matthew, thank you for calling in. I appreciate you having me. Uh, so you wrote an editorial I see here in the Daily Mail, and the uh, the headline itself is going to get people interested and I'm sure take very strong positions one way or the other. President Trump has done more for illegal immigrant children in two weeks than Obama did in two years, claims immigration lawyer. Do tell how this is the case. All right, well, just for clarification, I, I actually didn't write it. I just was uh, I was just quoted in it. But, oh, uh, sorry. Pardon me. You're, you're quoted in this. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, well, okay. This is basically just to give you a little background and history. Um, in 2014, there was a, a huge surge of unaccompanied minors that uh, flowed to the to the southern border from uh, from Central America, and uh, President Obama uh, enacted a policy that basically prioritized a uh, fast track deportation process for them and bumped them up to the front of the line. And uh, oftentimes, these these kids and it, it could have and children as, as young as two or three years old were required to represent themselves before the immigration court. And 
they uh, they obviously were ordered deported. Usually, a three year old can't defend themselves, just generally speaking. Uh, and then what ended up happening last year in January, almost exactly a year ago, there was a series of raids where uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement was kicking in doors and taking these kids that had been ordered deported without a lawyer and, and sending them back to their native countries. So um, President Trump, in the first two weeks of his presidency, signed, uh, had his, uh, his immigration judges, uh, the chief immigration judges, sign a memorandum deprioritizing these kids' deportations because they were put to the very front of the line. They were the, the, the hot-button cases that they wanted to dispose of as quickly as possible. And they've subsequently put them to the back of the line. And it's not all the kids. There, there are some kids that still are priorities uh, for deportation. But that small, simple act of kindness uh, is, is more than what we saw out of President Obama in his first two years. You're going to have to unpack this a little for me, Matt, because these, uh, the Obama administration, especially at the stage that you're talking about of Obama's presidency, wanting to deport kids, wanting to fast track their deportations, that seems contra so much of the of, of his administration's stated goals. And why would they do that? Well, that's uh, <laughs> an interesting question. Um, and the answer really is uh, probably it relates to the fact that Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president, said that you need to send these kids back to send a message that just because your child gets across the border doesn't mean that your child gets to stay. That, that was what she said. Uh, and I'm guessing she was acting in coordination with the Obama administration when she said that. And they decided to take a, a hard line stand. And, and the irony is these kids are refugees that are fleeing uh, unspeakable conditions in their native countries that were created as a result of the Obama and Department of State that Hillary Clinton was in charge of. Uh, so these were refugees, and, and we all know how President Trump is being billed as, as anti-refugees. Uh, well, <laughs> this part of the, of the issue isn't even the whole story, and, and I, I'll let you ask some questions before I, I, I segue if you want me to. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I've got, I got a lot of questions. First of all, I mean, you, you handle immigration cases a lot in your practice, right? It's my, the exclusive area of my practice. Right, okay, so uh, right now, uh, the Trump administration has is come under a lot of criticism for increasing, uh, I, I don't know, increasing the pressure, people are scared, there's all the, every day in a Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, illegal immigrants are scared, they're, they're all scared of what's going to happen is something different happening now, or is this just a perception because of who Trump is? Because I've had people on the show who are also immigration experts, and they say so far he's just been prioritizing the deportation of criminals, not just people who are here illegally, people who have actually broken the law in addition to their illegal status. Is that not the case? That's what he says he's doing. We obviously haven't been able to unpack uh, all of the, st- uh, the statistics yet, so we don't know exactly who has been uh, picked up, but um he president trump has indicated which was the exact same thing that president obama said that he was focusing as you pointed out his his deportation mechanism on on getting serious criminals out of the united states and the irony is that um i have a higher tendency to potentially believe president trump because with regards to what his intentions are because for the eight, the last eight years of president obama he said that he was focused on deporting people that were a threat to national security and or uh, individuals with particularly serious crimes. But when and we have unpacked those statistics and a very small, relatively small percentage 
of his deportation were anyone that was a national security threat or someone that had a particularly serious crime. Most of the individuals had um, either minor, low-level offenses, which would include traffic tickets, or uh, convictions that they received as a result of uh, President Obama using his Department of Justice to ramp up deport, excuse me, to ramp up criminal prosecution of immigration law uh, violators. And now, in his last year, 52% of all of the U.S. attorneys' offices nationwide, their caseload, 52%, are immigration crimes that they're prosecuting, not drug crimes, not you know he's he's obsessed with getting drugs, actually uh, drugs and excuse me, uh, guns off the street. He's not prosecuting those people. He's prosecuting immigrants in order to mint uh, new criminal aliens that he can use to pad, that he used to pad his, his deportation statistics because, uh, I mean, I, I work with immigrants. and Wait, oh, 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 wait, Obama was doing this? Oh, yeah. If you look at the statistics, 52% of all of his federal criminal prosecutions, nationwide immigration crimes. Really? I, yes. I, I'd have to check this out. I mean, my my understanding under the Obama administration was that in order to seem like they were much stronger on the border security and cracking down on illegal immigration, they changed the definition of what it meant to be deported to anybody caught at the border and turned back so that they would look like they were deporting many more people. Are you telling me that's not true? Because that's been out there for... Yeah, there's, there's a distinction of a return and a removal. A return is when someone isn't formally ordered, removed, and they're returned to their native country. They're caught trying to come into the United States, and they're just returned, whereas a removal is where there's an actual order from either an immigration judge or a summary expedited removal order that would be issued by an, uh, uh, an immigration but did, but did the Obama administration start counting both of those as just a general deportation for the purposes of telling the public we're deporting no, a lot of people? They're, they're, they're characterized with two separate statistics. Those are separate. So this notion that they changed the definition of what it means to be caught at the border as a deport, you're saying that's not true? Because that's been out there covered a lot by a lot of different news organizations saying Obama changed the definition to make it seem like he's tough. Because what you're what it sounds like you're telling me is that Obama was actually really tough on the illegal immigrant community, which would be oh, news, I think, not just to Republicans, but to a lot of Democrats. Oh, well, that, that's the reason why it's news is because it's not covered because and this is what I had said this morning uh, on Fox and Friends is that the, the traditional media sources um, well, they don't really have as much concern when a Democrat is deporting immigrants. But the second a Republican is in office, they run into the street hyperventilating with their hair on fire. But what about, I mean, Obama did the executive orders to give legal status to, I think it would have been, what, as high as 5 million people if he had gotten all of them covered uh, with his uh, DACA, uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and then Deferred Actions for the Parents, right, of of of, yeah. uh, of child arrivals as well. That would have been a five million people fine. that he would confer at least a temporary legal status to. So isn't that in huge contradiction to what you're telling me, which is that he was deporting people left and right? It was actually really harsh on illegal immigrants. I just I have a hard time reconciling these two ideas. Yeah, well, it's 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 hard to unpack. Um, okay, first of all, it wasn't an, a, an executive order. President Trump signed an, ex, an executive order. It actually had his signature at the bottom of the of the page. Uh, President Obama did executive actions, which were non-binding policy memorandums 
that were generally signed by um, either uh, Jay Johnson uh, signed them. Uh, there was two of them that were signed in 2014, uh, and one of them was enjoined uh, as a result of the, uh, the the Texas lawsuit, and that was the expansion of. Okay, but, but these are at the direction of the Obama administration. I mean, this, yeah, President Obama yeah. has, says, "Go yeah. do this." Jay Johnson signs it. Fair enough. But go ahead. Yes, but in any event, uh, yes, it did temporarily. It didn't confer any type of permanent lawful status to those individuals. Basically, what it did was, uh, well, what it was proposed to do was to uh, give them. Um, it was a favorable exercise of prosecution. They would, they would have what they would have had. Yeah, they would have been low on the prosecution list, so that there would, it would have been very unlikely they would get deported. And also, they could have gotten working papers, right? So they could work exactly, legally and stay, exactly. and they wouldn't get deported. And the idea being that, of course, eventually they're going to get some sort of permanent legal status. But that's beyond the purposes of our discussion right now. So Obama does that, which is clearly very pro-illegal immigrant. Why would he also at the same time be so harsh on illegal immigrants in these other uh, areas you're talking to me about? I just, I I don't understand that. Okay, well, this is another layer. Um, One of the things that, um, that is actually, I think Betsy Woodruff just wrote about it in the Daily Beast. The private prison industry has been funding Democrats for years and has benefited from the policies and the law that's been created by Democrats. And a lot of these individuals that are taken into immigration custody are held in for-profit private prisons. And the only person that was running for president that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton had the second most donations from private prison industry, other than uh, I think Marco Rubio had more. So uh, there was a lot of money being made for jailing immigrants in private jails. And that's part of the reason why it was happening. But still, the Democratic Party, it's whole. I mean, you got Hillary on her campaign website saying she wants illegal immigrants to get Obamacare. I mean, the, the, if you heard the rhetoric between Hillary and Bernie Sanders in their debate during the primary, they both sounded like more or less open borders candidate. So open borders candidates. So. I'm sorry. You would think you would think so. Well, that's what they were saying. No, I don't think that's what they were saying. I watched the debate. Oh, no, so it's very strange I, to me that you're telling me that Obama was I mean, I'd heard about this deporter in chief and the. The, the general consensus among at least people I know on the right was, look, he changed the definitions. He ramped up deportations for a little while. They also fudged the numbers a little bit, which maybe that's true or not true. You're telling me it's not true. Uh, but it was also they could get comprehensive immigration reform through. And to do that, to get the political capital to do that, he would need to seem tough on the border and seem like the border was secure. But you're saying that's not true. In the very end of the Obama presidency, he was deporting people left and right. Is that is that all well, correct? No. The last, the last year, uh, uh, his last year in office, really the last two years of office in, in office, that's when things were were uh, tamped, uh, tampered down. Uh, but for the first six years, it was full steam, steam ahead. There was definitely a marked change after uh, the Republicans took over uh, the Senate, and he realized that there was Okay, no so that is true. I mean, comprehensive immigration reform is dead, and all of a sudden Obama is like, well, I'm not deporting people. So that is, that is true. That is what happened. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and when I said that uh, you would think so, I wasn't contradicting what you were saying. I was saying that her, their rhetoric doesn't match their actions. I wasn't. Arguing. No, I understand. But but I, I just want to be clear. So the 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 surge in deportations, all the stuff that Obama was doing before it was clear that he wasn't going to get a comprehensive immigration reform bill. That was to create the political leeway to get amnesty, really. That, that is true. And then once that was gone, then all of a sudden we saw the, the Obama administration's real position on this, which is a much more lax policy when it comes to deportations. Well, if you, if you really go all the way to the beginning, though, the second that President Obama named Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff, 
that that spelled the end for immigration reform. If you recall, President Obama campaigned on moving on immigration reform, if not in his first hundred days, within his first year in office. And then Rahm Emanuel said, over my dead body, will immigration reform happen in my first term? Hmm. All right. Well, this has been very interesting. I'm going to I'm going to dive into some more. Matthew Colkin is a prominent immigration lawyer and partner at Colkin and Colkin. Matthew, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Have a nice weekend. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Team, we'll be right back. Interesting exchange with our guest there on immigration. Uh, Buck Saxon back with you all now. Um, I'm going to have to dive into some of some of the things that he was saying there, I'm not an immigration lawyer, so if he says he's defending that three-year-olds have to defend themselves in court, I've never seen any reporting on that. Again, I need to look into this. find that tough to believe. I feel like Scott in Florida is going to tell me the same thing here. Scott, you're on the Buck Section Show. Welcome. Hey, Mike, I appreciate it, man. Uh, uh, that's ridiculous. That's not even believable. Uh, they have much more serious issues than that to deal with, and they should deal with them. And uh, I've called in about immigration before, and uh, I want to see it stopped. Uh, they deplete and destroy everything they come in contact with. And uh, I just, you know, like I said, you're talking about illegal immigration, immigration, right? All right, illegal immigration, undocumented. Yeah. But this guy, man, where did you get him? <laughs> he was on Fox this morning. We thought it would be interesting to uh, have him on and have a chat uh i i, I gotta check into some of the stuff he's saying though i just there's no way that a court what do you, a three-year-old has to defend himself in court I and mean, that's I mean, even with a assigned counsel uh I, there's just no way and also this this idea that obama it sounded to me like he was telling me obama was really tough on illegal immigration and then i got him to uh, get him to tell me that the last two years yeah it was all look it, it was pretty clear and he did concede this so we'll say this uh that Obama was trying to create the perception of being strong on the border and tough on immigration because it was a bipartisan issue until in the sense that the Democrats were at least giving lip service to it. They were pretending they'd talk about it. They'd say, yeah, we need a secure border. Sure. But then after it was clear that the gang of eight bill in the Senate wasn't going to happen, Marco Rubio paid a price for that one, I think, as well in the primary, even though he changed his tune afterwards. Once it was clear they weren't going to get amnesty, which was the only guaranteed thing in that Gang of Eight bill, Scott, uh, then all of a sudden we saw an administration that's signing executive actions, not executive orders, to keep five million people here illegally and and give them working papers. And, you know, there's we saw what they were really all about in terms of the administration. So I, it wasn't really that surprising. And I'm a little his whole point about how Trump is better because he's. Okay, maybe Trump is better in that he's prioritizing criminals to deport, but Obama was trying to keep millions of people here here illegally. So it, there's there was a disconnect there. I might even go back and listen to that interview again and chase down uh, some of what he had to say. All I would say is it's disingenuous to think that they will break doors down to steal two and three year old babies to deport them. That's all I'll say about that. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no way. I mean, look, when they say deporting a three-year-old, clearly you're returning a three-year-old to his or her family. And I, I, I suppose... I, I, let's also talk about this. So are we to believe that a three, a three-year-old is crossing the border, what, without an adult? There's no way, obviously. That's not possible. So there must be an adult involved. I, I, anyway, I, I got to I gotta look into that a little bit. That was, I mean, his... You know... A guy's a lawyer. I figure he's got to. He's an immigration lawyer. I figure he's got to know something about immigration law. So, oh, oh, yeah. you know, 
But I, I feel like I would do a pretty. I've watched enough Law and Order that I think I'd do a pretty good job defending somebody if I really had to. Oh mercy! Yeah, all right, <laughs> all right Scott. Shields on, man. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. All right, someone's gonna have to tell me what John McCain is doing. What what, what is John McCain doing? Washington Post is reporting that he just quote systematically dismantled Donald Trump's entire world view. Uh, he was speaking at the Munich Security Conference in Germany, and the Republican senator from Arizona delivered a pointed and striking point-by-point takedown of Trump's worldview and brand of nationalism, but McCain didn't mention Trump's name once. Let me know if we get some audio. I want to get. I want to play some audio of this. Uh, in his speech, McCain suggested the Western world is uniquely imperiled this year, even more so than when Barack Obama was president and proceeded to question whether it will even survive. This is off in this Washington Post piece. He said, The founders of the Munich conference would be alarmed by an increasing turn away from universal values and toward old blood ties of... Uh, oh, sorry, old ties of blood and race and sectarianism. They would be alarmed by the hardening resentment we see towards immigrants and refugees and minority groups, especially Muslims. They would be alarmed by the growing inability and even unwillingness to separate truth from lies. They would be alarmed that more and more of our fellow citizens seem to be flirting with authoritarianism and romanticizing it as our moral equivalent. I mean, we got to get John McCain a a TV show on MSNBC. Is there an opening? We we might want to hook him up. Uh, He can stop this whole Senate situation and really just do what I think he'd rather do anyway, which is be on TV. There's a whole group of elected officials that in the House and the Senate that you really get the sense that, you know, if if they could get a cot in the corner at CNN, they would take it. You know, they would just they would they would live there if they could. Uh, but what is McCain doing trashing the commander in chief? Anyway, we'll get back to this in a second, team. Uh, we got a lot more on this. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. I've got to tell you, I read these remarks from John McCain in the break because I'd seen the coverage of it in the Washington Post. I, I thought to myself, all right, look, John McCain maybe they're picking out some stuff here to make it seem like he was saying things that he didn't say. They want to just cause strife and uh, dissension among the ranks or Republicans. No, this is pretty bad, actually. I read it. I I went into this. Uh, He, remarkably, uh, at a time when the West, and specifically, remember, he's giving this speech. He gave this speech... uh, uh, he gave the speech about the West and the threats to the West, and he's uh, he's the Munich Security Conference. Um, yeah, during a speech at the Munich Security Conference in okay, I'm uh, on John McCain's Senate website. It says Washington D.C. under the remarks. No, guys, the speech was in Munich. Come on now. Uh, so he's at this Munich Security Conference in Germany. Uh, the threat to the West, to our order in the West right now, is apparently from Donald Trump. 
I mean, that's the implication of this entire of this entire speech. He writes, the next panel asks us to consider whether the West will survive. In recent years, this question would invite accusations of hyperbole and alarmism. Not this year. If ever there were a time to treat this question with a deadly seriousness, it is now. Uh, wow. Um, it happened. I mean, he, he, I'm trying to find ways to summarize this, that I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Um, but this is, it's clearly, it, it is to, to me as I read it. He says, I know there is a profound concern across Europe and the world that America is laying down the mantle of global leadership. Um, make no mistake, my friends, these are dangerous times, but you should not count America out. What? Who says anything about counting America out? He he mentions, and this is fascinating, he mentions Islam, but only in the context of a fear of Muslims, not in the context of the threat to the West from jihadism, from Islamism. No mention of that as far as I, as, I mean, I read this quickly in the break, but I did read the whole thing. And it is, he said they, they would be alarmed by the hardening resentment, resentment we see toward immigrants and refugees and minority groups, especially Muslims. Maybe John McCain hasn't seen the polling in Europe about how a bunch of European countries now really are rethinking the whole, let's just bring in people from disparate cultures all over the world in huge numbers and hope that they adopt to our ways, but we're not going to make them. So they can do whatever they want. Wow. Given that the rise of, this is this is astonishing, the rise of uh, recent nationalist sur- the recent nationalist surge that's occurred in Europe is in large part in direct response to Germany taking in a million uh, immigrants from the Middle East or from Muslim majority countries in one year. And then the number of mass casualty attacks that we've seen in France, as well as attempted and realized mass casualty attacks by uh, either Muslim immigrants or the children of Muslim immigrants in Germany. And we see that he, he's saying the, the threat to the Western order is is Donald Trump. This is this is amazing. I I. John McCain, I do not know. I mean, the, the threat to the Western order comes from the guy, the commander in chief who has Jim Mattis as his secretary of defense, who has Kelly as his de- Department of Homeland Security chief, who has Jeff Sessions as his attorney general, who has Mike Pence as his vice president. This is the guy who's the threat to the Western order. Look, we can talk about how Trump is not just rough around the edges, but can be uh Vulgar. Yeah, you can take that position, sure. And that he doesn't do things the way other politicians do them. And I know that for some people that's a good that's a good in and of itself. For others, it's a departure and they're not used to it. They don't like it. They think that it's unbecoming of the presidency. I understand all that. But a threat to the Western order? I I want to ask John McCain, and maybe we could get him to call into the show. It's worth a try. Uh uh, producer Amy, let's let's see. Let's reach out to John McCain's office and see if he'll come on. I'd like to ask him what he what he thinks about all this Russia reporting with regard to Trump. If he thinks Trump is a th- and look, he doesn't mention Trump's name, and that may be the out here, but he's using a lot of talking points you'd see from you know, the Daily Coast or 
I, I don't know, The Nation, Slate, Washington Post, New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of a lot of what you'd hear from them is contained in this speech, the speech that he's giving in a foreign country in which he says that we should be worried about the survival of the West. But then he just talks about problems that are associated with Donald Trump. Authoritarianism, flirting with authoritarianism. Amazing to me. Barack Obama approved the wiretapping of journalists. Barack Obama prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than every single president before him combined. Barack Obama would say that when Congress wouldn't do what he wanted them to do, that he had the authority to just go around them because he had a pattern on a phone and he would do it himself. But Donald Trump is the one flirting with authoritarianism, I assume, is what's being said here. I mean, maybe McCain is, is trying to leave this vague enough that he's really talking about Putin, and that's what he's trying to say. But I would like to ask him, do, do you think that the current commander-in-chief would betray his country for the Russians? Can someone just, can somebody with all this Russia conspiracy stuff, conspiracy stuff just tell me why Donald Trump would, he loves Putin so much. He loves Putin more than his own country, than the American people, than the futures of his children and his grandchildren. He, he really loves Russia that much? Did he sell out his country for them? It's not for money. He doesn't need any more money, and Russia's not giving him billions of dollars. So why would he sell out his country for Russia? And, and I know this seems like a simplistic analysis to some. It's like, oh, Buck, well, you've got to get to the bottom of it. You've got to dig deep. And what about all these connections? I've read about all the connections. So far, all I've read about are some political consultants that used to work for him that don't work for him anymore that were selling themselves to the highest bidder on the international political scene to advise them. I mean... Is it something that you'd want to tell your grandkids about and be super proud? I don't know, but I don't think it's the end of Western civilization. And this is what John McCain is saying, that this Trump crew is so dangerous to the uh, Western order that he's, he's giving this speech. This is really damaging. I mean, this plays into all of the worst fears and stereotypes that are constantly being exacerbated in Europe about the current administration in this country. And I, I just, you know, I get a little sick of it. I know that, you know, John McCain, everybody always has to stop. Oh, honorable service. Yeah, we of course, honorable service, right? We all have to always have to stop. Say John McCain, serve his country honorably, POW. I get all of that. But sometimes on policy, I think he stinks. And he's a senator, and his job now is being a an advocate for different policies, voting for bills, voting voting things into law. This is what he does. Yeah, he also is a part of the conversation on foreign policy and other things too. But, so I'm allowed to really not like what he says and does now. And you are too. And I, I would ask you if, you, if you get the chance, go and re- we have some, let's play, let's play some of what John McCann had to say. The Flynn issue obviously is something that is, is, shows that in many respects, this administration is in disarray and they've got a lot of work to do. The president, I think, makes statements that on other occasions he contradicts himself. So some of us have learned to watch what the president does as opposed to what he says. I guess that was in the Q&A section of this speech. Uh, I didn't see that in the transcript here, but, you know, 
the White House in disarray. It, it, the White House doesn't seem to be in disarray to me. They've got to find a national security advisor. Okay, let's just put this out there. I know that this guy, um, I'm, I'm actually forget. Uh, what's his, what's the guy's name? The national security advisor who didn't take the job. I'm forgetting his name now. Um, Har- Harward. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Harward. Uh, you know, he didn't take the job. I get it. You want to be Trump's national security advisor? You want to step into that? Pot of boiling water? I can imagine why that wouldn't be top of the list. You're now a highly... He's the guy who served his country for decades. He's a former Navy SEAL. Great. A great American, a patriot. You know what? God bless him. He wants to make money, spend time with his family, and doesn't want to do this. I get it. I also think it probably mattered to him a lot that he wasn't able to pick his own top team, and they don't want more departures at the top of the National Security Council. Uh, I feel the same way. If you if it's if you're going to be held to account for that kind of a job, you've got to have your top people in place. That would be my my feeling, at least, although I'm a long way from being a national security advisor, although I'd be a good one. Just putting that out there. Call me, Trump. Call me. Uh, But, yeah, it's you know, I can understand why he wouldn't take that job. But the National Security Council is large. A lot of people work there. And it's not like Trump is lacking in lacking counsel when it comes to military and you know that security advisor wasn't even around it's like a relatively new gig really and you know he's got a mattis as secretary of defense i'm not saying you shouldn't have an nsa although you know once someone once a senior government post is created just like a government agency the idea of not having it everyone's like oh my gosh what are we gonna do you know so well he didn't so he goes and asks mattis if he's or he talks to the head of the cia or talks to the dni the director of national intelligence or talks to the head of the nsa or talks to the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff i mean we could do this all day oh the white house is in disarray he doesn't have a national security advisor for a couple of days he'll live just gotta be on you know it's gonna be okay it's not the it's not the end of the world this notion the white house is in disarray you know what's putting the white house into some level of disarray and this is not of course the media focus or all the leaks about a White House in disarray, about conversations that are private, that are leaked, that are classified, that, you know, that makes things harder. You gotta love this. The press is simultaneously pushing the White House into, quote, disarray, and then reporting on the disarray. I mean, this is like showing up, putting in the, the, the bed bug infestation yourself, and then being like, well, you got a bed bug infestation. You're going to have to pay me a lot of money to get rid of that for you. I mean, uh, it's a good way to do it. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, this is reporting on all the disarray. Meanwhile, the disarray comes from the way the press is reporting on the administration and the problem they created with Flynn, but this is very fixable. I don't know why they're still talking about Petraeus. Uh, yeah, that is, a, that is a no-go. And I have no animus against Petraeus. People make mistakes. I'm very forgiving of people's mistakes, you know, as to the degree anybody I think sensibly can be. Uh, but what he did was was really bad it, it, professionally. I don't think he endangered national security. No one's going to die because of what Petraeus did. That's all true. But, you know, we can't have somebody that just avoided felony prosecution for all right I, we'll get we'll get back to this in a second and i'm gonna have to talk more about john mccain i got a lot to talk to you guys about we got third hour freestyle which means it's gonna be fun and wild crazy topics um 844-900-2825 we got some spots on the lines give me a call on the freedom hut be right back oh boy uh there is this is this is not this is not sitting well with the press establish establishment um, you have, oh, oh my, let's, let's see. 
Donald Trump tweeting out. This is great. I mean, it's I mean, it's entertaining. The fake news media. This is just a little earlier today, right before I came on air today. Trump tweeted out the fake news media, failing New York Times, NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. Woo, that is, that is going to get them spun up. That is not going to be met uh, favorably by the, uh, by the press, the media establishment. Um, wow. I am not, I'm not surprised that uh, some of them are going to completely freak out over the weekend about this. I'm sure that is, in fact, the case. Uh, do we, by the way, do we have... The Max, this is what's out there. Uh, Representative Congresswoman Maxine Waters is going all in on this Kremlin Trump thing. Just as an aside, I played a little bit for you yesterday. Can we do the, yeah, she says he's part of a Kremlin clan. Play it. I've come to conclude that Trump has the Kremlin clan surrounding him and have been involved with him for a long time and you named some of them this evening i believe there's been collusion uh, they were involved in his campaign and we've got to dig these investigations have got to show the connection and prove that collusion because as for me i think it leads to impeachment and i believe that okay first of all my, my sense of investigations is that usually you do it to find out information I like the way that Congresswoman Waters like, wants investigations to happen, though, where they find out certain things that lead to a certain conclusion. I like that she's upfront about that. You know, I'd like to see that. You know, I'd like there to be an investigation so we impeach him. Well, wait, shouldn't you probably have something to go on before you move to that impeachment phase? Isn't that maybe better for all involved, I would think, or no? Oh, no, no, because, of course, the real goal is to just get rid of this president. I have to say, as well, if they removed... The, the, the amazing thing to me is, if they remove Trump from office, let's just say, let's just play this game out for a second. Let's war game this puppy together, okay? So, if they manage to remove Trump from office, the House impeaches, the Senate removes, which, I, unless they have video of Trump and Putin shirtless doing the doing the tango with the moon in this in the air and trump saying you know i'll, I'll do anything for you vladimir I'll, I'll sell out my country i mean it would have to be really extreme stuff but let's just say that that happened just for the for the for the purposes of of our discussion i mean you got a congresswoman who's out there saying that he's part of a kremlin clan and all these other major newspapers across the country running these stories the new york times running a story about how he has Top advisors in constant contact or continuous contact, frequent contact with Russian intelligence. I'd really like to see what that evidence is and what that's all about. Um, and, and to what end? I suppose the theory here. Oh, wait, sorry. Let me not get into the theory. I know I'm jumping around. So they remove Trump from office. Then they just get President Pence who is about as even-keeled, straight-shooter, squeaky-clean background as any politician anybody knows. So what are the, you know, it's amazing, it's amazing. And now, look, I'm not saying this would be a good thing. I, I think, you know, first of all, I think it's crazy they're even talking about it. But other people on the right who are trying to, uh, not certainly with the backing of the entirety of the mainstream media, but there were some voices that were saying, oh, from the get-go, we need to impeach Obama. Okay. 
But even if they were successful in this pipe dream, they're just going to get left with a President Pence anyway, who would do a darn good job. So, you know, they just, this is just red meat for the base, fun to flip out. They got nothing, nothing to talk about worth talking about right now, other than how terrible Trump is. You know, they don't offer any policy solutions or anything else. So it's just astonishing to me that here we are. We've already got people saying the Trump Kremlin clan, all this stuff. It's just nonsense. It really is. Um, But people are people are really latching on to it. All right. Third hour. We got some freestyle coming, which means random topics, fun topics and some news topics. Also, you can call them whenever you like. 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's why why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. 844-900-2825 if you want to call in. 844-900-2825. We're joined now by our guest, Jean Donaldson. She's one of the world's leading experts in dog training and behavior with over 30 years of experience. She's the founder and director of the San Francisco SPCA Academy for Dog Trainers. And she's uh, got award-winning books, including The Culture Clash and Oh Behave. Jean, thank you very much for calling in. Hey, glad to be here. Um, so there are a couple of new studies out. You're, so you're, you're an, a world leading expert in dog training behavior. I saw a couple of pieces. I love dogs and I'd be willing to bet about 99% of the audience listening right now also loves dogs. Um, one of the, the, the fascinating studies, one of them is about how dogs judge the behavior of humans. They did this experiment where they bring people in and they act out things where a, a human being is either being kind or generous or being indifferent or not so nice, and the dogs respond to this. How does this work? That, that study, we want to be a little bit careful about interpreting that. Um, the way it was set up, they had dogs witnessing people either being nice or not nice to a human uh, near them, and then the dog had the option of going to that person to, to accept a reward or not. And according to the study, dogs were more likely to approach for a reward somebody who seemed to be kind to other people. The problem is there, you know, that's going to need to be replicated before I'm personally convinced that that's what's going on, that dogs are evaluating morality. Um, it's really possible that the dog is looking and seeing, well, that person is the one that most recently you know, touched the, the thing full of treats and had it open. But, you know, when I was reading it through, I thought, eh, you know, I, we need to replicate that one and to be absolutely sure that that's the interpretation. But it's not out of the question that that's what's going on. Now, what is true about dogs and their ability to uh, tell, you know, I've heard people say things like, is it in Jerry Maguire, the kid says bees and dogs can smell fear. Uh, can dogs pick up? I'm, I'm Probably, I don't know if that's true about bees. I'm assuming it's not, but maybe it is. Uh, But can dogs pick up human emotions? Are they able to, you know, if you're angry or sad or based on your tone of voice, uh, how much emotional intelligence does uh, man's best friend really possess when it comes to interacting with men and women? They have tons, tons of ability there. Not only can they learn, they can learn all kinds of subtle things that, boy, when, you know, when people start raising their voices, when people start doing this out of the other, it predicts bad things for me. They also have a long evolutionary history 
with people. Um, and so they're very finely tuned, and they're very finely tuned to their owners because the owner is really the center of their world. The owner makes all the decisions that affect the dog's life. Um, and so it, it's really not surprising that they're so bonded to us and that they do. They, they understand, um, you know, bad emotions, uh, uh, anger uh, when people are uh, about to be scary. And they also, I think, learn when we're in good moods and that, you know, good things are about to happen. I mean, they, they, this piece in the Mirror, the uh, paper in the UK, says that dogs have a human-like sense of morality, according to this research experiment done in Japan, uh, where they, they set up, I mean, this is an, another experiment that I'm sure is imperfect, but makes for an interesting reading, uh, where they have yeah. people, and uh, in one experiment, according to the Mirror, involved the dog watching two people arrive with three balls, one asked for the uh, one asked the other for their balls, essentially they played out a, a an instance of generosity and kindness among people, and they're saying the dogs responded to that. What do you say? I don't know. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not out of the question, but um, I would want to see that replicated um, to control for effects like the dog saying, well, that was the person that handled the ball more. Um, that's the person where it, it's more fresh in the dog's mind and that's where the ball was actually situated. I'm not sure that that research did a perfect job of controlling for all alternative effects that could explain that. I hate to be sort of the, the buzzkill on this, but... you know, No, I figure we brought you in for your expertise. These experiments, I, I read them, I thought, well, it, 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 it makes for interesting reading, which of course is why a, a UK tabloid yeah, is going to be printing this, uh, but they, they said that in this, this other experiment that the researchers found that dogs were less inclined to accept treats from a person that they had observed doing the, quote, selfish behavior. So again, they're saying that there's a response here to this, but it, it seems to me very likely based on the differences uh, that you can observe, that anyone can observe in a dog's behavior when we, when you, when you know the owners, I feel like you can really make the judgments pretty easily because you know that an attentive owner that really cares about the dog, that seems to be, at least in my experience, reflected in the dog's behavior. Whereas if a dog's in an erratic household, if it's, uh, if it's put under a lot of duress or stress, if there are people that aren't around to take care of it, if it's left alone for long periods of time and, you know, it, it's not taken care of properly, that then that also manifests itself. But I feel like people are mo- most able to make those determinations when they know the owners, and maybe that also skews their view of what's going on. Certainly. I mean, the owner variable is enormous with dogs. I mean, um, and so what you, exactly what you just said um, is probably a more important effect. So even if there is some ability of dogs to gauge and care about morality, which I would say remains to be seen. I mean, I think that the healthy skepticism here is probably a good position to take. And there's going to be more such research coming along. Um, you know, others are going to attempt to replicate this, and we'll see what they come up with. Uh, we uh, also, I wanted to know what you think about this notion that the, because uh, I've, I've seen studies about this in the past too, and for everybody listening, we're speaking to Jean Donaldson. She's a world-leading expert in dog training and behavior. Um, Jean, can do- when your voice, you know, people when they talk to their dogs, they sort of do baby talk. And also, of course, if the dog, you know, goes wee-wee on the rug, then people will say, oh, don't, you know, they're the very stern voice. Can they make those kinds of determinations? Is that something that's, uh, yeah. can, they, can they make that distinction based on voice content? Yes, they 
can. Um, and not only can they do it sort of naturally, but they're going to find um, a lot of dogs find it inherently kind of pleasing that baby talk. So if you're not good at doing it, it's worth cultivating the ability. It does make a difference. And dogs also are really expert at learning. They learn that when we tend to do that, we then tend to be nice to them. Or when we tend to, you know, raise our voices, we then tend to be scary to them. So they learn those associations also really well. So you've got a lot of people listening who have dogs. Uh, what are some of your what are some of your, your, your basic foundational if you want a, a, a happy canine companion, but you want him to or her to you know obey basic commands and, and have a, a very good relationship with the two of you that makes it easier to deal with the dog and you get everything you want out of the relationship, all the rest of it. What is the what are the important things that you would want people to know about if they've got a puppy or if they're about to adopt a dog, what should they know? How should they do this? If they've got a young puppy, the most important thing is to get that puppy out and exposed to a wide variety of people and get it some age mates, get it some dog, other puppy friends so the dog gets really socialized. If they've got an adult dog, then we're on to, you know, trying to train him to be a good companion. And in that case, it's all about motivation. Um, there's a saying in, among pro trainers, which is no motivation, no training. And I think a lot of people expect the, the, you know, the dog to just obey out of some sort of sense of gratitude. And unfortunately, that's not going to happen. And so get to your fridge, get the chicken, and start motivating your dog. So treats are an essential part of training a, training a dog. I mean, this is like, you know, if someone wants me to show up for work, they got to pay me. So if you want your dog to do what you tell it, you got to give it a little, a little something, a little something to be excited about. Yeah, I mean, you might really love your job, and people, many people like their jobs, but as soon as the payment stops, behavior's going to die, um, and we need to accept that about dogs. It doesn't mean they love us any, any less. It just means that they're like a properly functioning animal, and you've got to motivate them, and the really good pros know to do that. Is there a, a book or a site that you'd recommend to people if they want to learn a bit more about how to properly train their dog? We have uh, uh, graduates um, from our program, which are the most uh, thoroughly trained trainers. Um, so if they go to academyfordogtrainers.com, um, they can do a search in their local area and find a competent trainer. Training is not regulated in this country, so it's very much buyer beware. Anybody can hang out a shingle, so make sure you get somebody who's uh, licensed, educated, uh, knows their stuff, got credentials. What was that site again? Uh, Academy for dog All right. Gene Donaldson, expert in dog training and award-winning author, including the culture clash and Oh behave. Gene, appreciate your time this Friday night. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. All right, team buck. We've started our freestyle Friday action here in this hour. We could also take some calls from you wherever you are across the country. 844-900-2825. We will be right back. Buck is back. Thank you so much for being with me, team. Really appreciate it. We got John in Mississippi on WBUV. Getting a lot of WBUV love tonight. Thank you down there in Mississippi. What's up, John? Well, hello, Buck. Uh, I'm uh, Frankly, I'm, I put myself on hold so I could hear the last hour of your show. And uh, I am intrigued by your attempt to analyze John McCain. And I, I consider him an enigma. But I also <laughs> believe that uh, we really don't know quite a few of our politicians we have to uh, really make an effort to get to know them and dig into their their thoughts and their feelings what motivates them and so i I applaud you for apparently you have an interest in psychology which this kind of ties into your last uh, guest who talked about dogs how intelligent they are so um 
I'm I'm interested in your show, and I think uh, I, I like the way you think. And so I'm glad I've been on hold, and I hope you can put me back on hold and I hear the rest of you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, look, I, I appreciate very much that you, you like the show and you're enjoying it. So thank you, uh, John, for calling in. And as well, to John as to uh, John McCain, uh, uh, you, go you, ahead. You should get a job with the Central Intelligence Agency and analyze complex problems. I think you'd be good at that. I'll be honest with you. I was pretty good at it back in the day. They wanted me, they wanted me to stay very badly, but I, I decided that I had uh, had enough working for the government. But John Shields Hyde out of Mississippi, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, no, I, I I was never somebody who left when I when I left the CIA. It wasn't because I didn't like it or didn't uh, didn't uh, fully buy into the mission, or I just wanted to spend some time. I'm from New York City. I was born and raised here. I figured I'd spend some time with my family because I had been largely away from them for a few years. I had my, my brothers and my sister and my parents and aunts, uncles, cousins, all the rest of it up here in New York. And so I asked to take a year to go up to New York City and work for the NYPD Intelligence Division while uh, I was at the agency. So they gave me leave to go do that. And after being at the agency for about five years or so, and then I was thinking, well, maybe I'll go to grad school. And I was applying to MBA programs, uh, business business schools. And uh, got into a school I was very happy to get into and was waiting to hear from another one. And I had a, those of you who are wondering about this, I had coffee with a woman who had heard about me. And she had heard about me from a mutual, well, from a, a friend of mine, an acquaintance of hers at a women in technology conference. And she had her assistant Send me an email and say, "Hey, I, you know, heard you're thinking about business school. I'm, and, and I know you're a former CIA. I just res- I resigned from the CIA. I'm a former CIA guy. And might want to do a little writing. You know, might want to do a little analysis while you're in school. And I, that was the at least the pretext for the meeting. And we sat down. It turned out she was the president of the Blaze and had been uh, before that the CEO of the Huffington Post. Believe it or not." And we got along quite well, and she said, you should come work for us, and that was at The Blaze, which Glenn Beck started when he left Fox News, and I had, uh, to apply to business school, I had cashed out my meager 401k, because the applications and all the materials and everything were expensive, and I remember, and I, and I was, it was really, at the time, pretty much all the money in the world that I had uh, went to save a spot. At a, and they have a very long waiting list, and they were perfectly happy to just keep my money uh, to save a spot at one business school. And I was waiting to hear from another. And if you don't take the spot, they keep your money. And I couldn't get the money back, and the school gave me a T-shirt. And as I like to say to people, that's the, that's the most expensive T-shirt in the world, dude. That was a really – and it's not even nice. Like, the cotton's not even a good quality. Uh, it doesn't fit well. It's kind of one of those stiff T-shirts. But that was the most expensive T-shirt I ever bought because they they sent that to me when I sent them the deposit. I never got that deposit back. And it'll be six years ago in June that I made the decision to uh, work for The Blaze right when it was really starting up as a TV channel. And then later on, it also got going with a radio station, digital radio only. And that's how yours truly found his way after doing that and then filling in for Glenn on radio and then uh, Sean Hannity and then... Rush Limbaugh, and then filling in for Rush a whole bunch of times, and most recently in uh, in January. Uh, that's how this all happened. So uh, the CIA was a very interesting place. I, I'll try to think. 
Uh, I'm always very cautious about talking about agency stuff for, for obvious reasons. Uh, but since I like all of you, those of you listening to me here on uh, Buck Sex with America Now, I'm going to try to think of some anecdotes to share with you. I, I like to tell you the funny stuff about being an analyst, uh, about being an analyst there and, and some of the uh, less James Bond-like aspects of it. I remember uh, driving. So anyway, I'm just giving you some of my my backstory. It's, it's Friday. You know, a lot of you probably finished with work or finishing up work, getting ready for your weekends. Figure we could hang out for a little bit. Uh, but I remember being at the agency, and and also, it it wasn't my first day, but it was maybe my first week there. I was driving up, and I was trying to get my my uh, badge to show them so they'd let me drive in. And I kind of fumbled, and then I sort of didn't really. Uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't hit the accelerator, but I kind of my car kind of kept going a little bit and almost went into one of those vehicle barriers. And a guy with the, you know, the, standing there with the M4 or whatever he was carrying comes out and he's, you know, you're okay. And I kind of stopped short. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, just a super spy, man. Just got all these crazy, crazy skills like James Bond himself. I'm like the second coming of Jason Bourne. Uh, so anyway, the CIA was a very interesting place, though, and it. Definitely in, informs your worldview. Be and though a lot, I know a lot of you are uh, former military or current military, and I'm sure some of you are intel officers currently either in the IC or in the military uh, military branches of the IC. So it's a uh, it's an interesting interesting perspective that you get from all of it because you're really often looking at what your what the public is not supposed to know about what different governments are doing and how they operate. And, you develop a very realistic view of governments, foreign governments especially, and and then you start to get this weird feeling that creeps up in the back of your mind sometimes. You start to think to yourself, wait a second, this, this report that I'm reading about the shady backroom dealings and the nepotism and all the other corrupt stuff that's happening in you know, Durka Durkistan or wherever – kind of sounds like some stuff that happens in this country. Uh, you know, that's that comes after, for me, I think that started to happen maybe in year two. I would think to myself, we're so uh, so quick to point out that, and look, it's not, I'm not saying it's the same here as it's everywhere. America's number one, we're the best. But it's just funny. You read reports of how uh, you get to see when you're in the agency how other governments really function and you get to see them warts and all and then in a very scaled down different much less egregious version you sort of see similar things playing out here sometimes i don't know it depends on which country we're talking about right i mean some of them are uh, crazy autocracies or in the midst of some kind of a civil war or an insurgency or they got jihadists grabbing parts of the country or they've got separatist groups that are picking off whole parts of the country um but it, it is a very uh, very worthwhile experience to get that view of how those other countries function and then you start to draw i'm just saying you draw parallels to what goes on here sometimes you go oh so that's that's the way that it is um and you begin to see more i i think it's a very useful context for understanding uh government and you see it it's just, it's just a lot of people it's just people who have power to do certain things but they have their own interests they're pursuing their own uh their own agendas their careers and their personal Flaws and foibles certainly come into play. So, and I, I really, I really liked being uh, being the CI. I really enjoyed it. And I'll have to tell you about the NYPD Intelligence Division. Maybe we'll do like Friday, Friday story, Friday spy story time. Uh, I'll, I'll think of a way to get that going. 
Um, but we've also got a fantastic guest coming up here in a few minutes. I, by the way, I've been meaning to talk to you about Afghanistan. We had a guest uh, who's a good friend of mine who's a combat veteran of Afghanistan. We're going to come on and talk about what's happening there. Put a pin in that for next week. We'll get to Afghanistan next week and do a deep dive because media is not covering this at all. And that place is going to fall apart very quickly if we don't pay attention and, and figure out a, a better policy there. That's at least my assessment. That's a short version of a much longer conversation we're going to have together. Uh, 844-900-2825. You want to call in, team? And otherwise, got a lot more show for you, so we'll be back right after this break. Buck is back. Hey, everybody. Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. 1-844-900-BUCK. That's 1-844-900-2825. Freestyle Friday continues here in the Freedom Hut, my friends. We are going to talk now about woolly mammoths. That's right. There's a story in the Telegraph in the UK that woolly mammoths could be brought back from extinction within two years, according to a world-renowned geneticist and his team at Harvard University. Well, we've got a fantastic world-renowned geneticist of our own here. Professor David Sinclair is at Harvard Medical School, co-director of the Glenn Center for Aging Research and Time Magazine's list of the uh, 100 most influential people in the world in 2014. Dr. Sinclair, thank you so much for joining. Oh, you're welcome, Buck. Woolly mammoths could make a comeback? Is, is this for real? This sounds like the plot of Jurassic Park, kind of. Uh, well, it, it, it's straight out of Jurassic Park, but uh, the technology is getting pretty close to being able to do such a thing. If, if someone were to choose to do that, uh, as George Church, my colleague, has uh, said that he's going to try. How would they do it? Can you walk us through this in, in layman's terms? How would they make this happen? Well, fortunately uh, for uh, the listeners, um, I'm helping George a little bit with this. He's, uh, just, he has a lab just down the hall from me, so I'm pretty familiar with it. That's amazing. Uh, it is amazing stuff. So just in a, in a nutshell, what, what they're trying to do is to uh, have cell lines, so grow cells from, uh, from actually from a, an elephant, and once you grow the, those cells, you can change their genetics. You can go in with new technologies that George and others have invented to put in genes that we know once existed in the mammoth and change a few of those and make the, the elephant... A uh, little bit more hairy, uh, have blood that works in the cold, uh, and then you can. It's pretty easy to turn a cell line now, a gr- cell that you grow in the lab, into an actual animal, and that would be phase two. And they have used DNA from mammoths that were preserved in Arctic permafrost to find some of these genes that separate woolly mammoths from elephants, and they've been able to find some of this. Yeah, that's routine now. Uh, you, people are getting DNA out of a lot of fossils as well. Uh, so that's, that's not really the challenge. We, we have the genome of the, of the mammoth, most of it, uh, and you can synthesize genes easily with a machine. Anybody could do it. A high school student could do it. Uh, and now it's just a question of putting two and two together, and that's what George is trying. What are some of the other extinct species, if I may ask, uh, that uh, other than woolly mammoths that, they may have been, that they've been able to get or could theoretically get uh, genetic material from in order to do this splicing to bring back some of these traits? This is fascinating stuff. Uh, well, the, they started out, uh, scientists started uh, 
finding frozen animals. So this is why the mammoth was pretty easy because it wasn't even a fossil. It's still straight out of your freezer in the permafrost. And there are other animals from the permafrost, the giant elk, that the one that's about three times bigger than the typical uh, elks up there. Uh, they've all been done. And just recently I saw that uh, scientists were able to pull not just some, some DNA but actually some protein out of fossils from dinosaurs. And so, yeah, really it's, it's not that difficult anymore. People are pulling bacteria out of million-year-old rocks now. So, okay, if they can pull protein, you said protein out of some some fossils, uh, where does the whole Jurassic Park theory, and Michael Crichton was, people, a lot of people don't know this, which I always find amazing, was a Harvard-trained MD, uh, so he was very helpful in a lot of his science, uh, sci-fi writing. Uh, where does that break, I mean, how far away are we from doing something like that? Where Where does that become purely science fiction and, and not in the realm of, well, maybe in 20 or 30 years we can do this? Well, the problem uh, for George uh, and, and all of us who would, would even contemplate such a thing is that it's currently very difficult to change large parts of the genome. So George likes to say, Professor Church likes to say that uh, he can tweak a few genes. He can go in and he can add maybe five or six or you know, one day maybe even 80 different genes. But that's not going to give you a whole woolly mammoth. It's going to give you, and this is a quote from him, a, uh, an elephant that likes the cold uh, and, and looks a little bit hairier. But really to make it a new species uh, or bring one back, that's extremely difficult unless it's very related to a current species that we have. And we don't have very close species to even a dinosaur with perhaps the exception of some some uh, two-legged birds, but to be able to get a dinosaur out of those, you'd need to change. I see, because I remember in Jurassic Park, uh, the, the book, the way they got around this, and I understand this is science fiction, but what they said was, oh, we'll use, they spliced in, I think it was frog DNA, right? That was, And that's how they filled in these gaps. And to people who don't actually work on this stuff at, at a you know, world-renowned level, that sounds sensible enough, or you know, sounds realistic enough that you can suspend disbelief and go forward with it. But I see. So you need to have a, a close living species now, and then you can make modifications to it. So it's really not so much making a woolly mammoth as making a hairy elephant that is okay in cold weather. Yeah, that's right. Ah, okay. And I also want to ask you about this piece in Science Magazine about a U.S. panel giving a uh, yellow light, it says here, to human embryo editing. Where are we on this? Well, that uh, yeah, that's a, a very touchy topic. Uh, I'm happy to to talk about it. The we're at a at a point in in human history where it is scientifically feasible to correct a genetic disease in an egg um, or an embryo before it's made, born, whether it's an animal or a human being. Um, and now we're at the point whether we should do that. And it really, it doesn't really come down to the, the technology because we have the technology to do that. It's more about should we, uh, is it safe, is it morally correct, um, and will it benefit the world? I mean, for I have celiac disease, which, as I understand it, is, is genetic, and it's just you have it and you have it. If there were, if it was possible to medically determine that I'd have that beforehand and make sure that I didn't have it, I, I would raise my hand and be like, I would really rather not have that be the case. So they're they're looking to do things like that, right, to prevent uh, congenital birth defects, to pre- pre- prevent uh, inherited and, and genetic disease. My understanding, Doc, and, and I don't know much about this stuff other than just what I read in, in newspapers. I do read a lot of newspapers, but that's all that I really read in terms of science, uh, is that they're finding that there's the... Uh, 
genetic blueprint for people or a lot of disease, more diseases inherited than was thought even a few decades ago. Is that is that true or is that just my perception? Oh, it's it's definitely true. There's there's hundreds and hundreds of diseases now that we know have a genetic basis. Um, and it, it's not difficult to actually find these mutations in the genes before a child is born. They're that technology is is already available. What's different now is that instead of just saying, I want that embryo and not that one, we can actually take a defective egg or an embryo and, and potentially fix the gene before it's born. Um, but what that raises, of course, is what's your definition of fixed? Do you prevent Huntington's or do you say, I want my future child to never get heart disease and to be super intelligent? because that one day should be possible. How far are we from making, uh, from being able to, scientifically speaking, being able to uh, change an embryo, so, or sorry, change an, an egg before it's even fertilized, uh, so that there would be those kinds of uh, marked genetic characteristics, you know, making it much more difficult, for example, to get heart disease. I mean, my understanding is that once you get above age 40, there are really only a few diseases that you that are likely to be the ones that get you. It's cancer, heart disease, stroke, and I think there's a fourth one that I can't remember, but three of the four I just named, if you could make people much less susceptible to those, you'd probably extend a lot of individuals' lives. I mean, how close are we to being able to do that? Uh, I think it's, it's doable right now. Uh, if, if wow. If supposed to do it, um, we can do it in animals already, and there's just in the last couple of years, it's become possible with new genetic engineering technologies. And so probably someone in the world will do it. And um, yes, we're in a, in, a, in a brave new world. Are, are we able to identify at this point what you, you mentioned uh, intelligence? And I know that once you start getting into the genetics of intelligence, that's also a highly, and we're talking about a lot of hot button stuff here, but that's a very uh, highly pol- uh, politicized and People get very intense in their discussions of, of all of that. But is it possible to identify certain characteristics, genetic characteristics in in an uh, egg, for example, that would bring about that at least have a greater likelihood of bringing about a high level of intelligence? Are we already there with that, or is that also a few years off if the research continues? Heart disease is, is doable, but uh, and longevity even we we understand a lot about longevity and, and aging, what controls that. But intelligence is the hardest nut to crack. We don't have a good idea what the genes are for intelligence. There's some ideas. There's there's one that uh, humans have an, an abundance of um, FOXA1, it's called. But you're right. It, it's still a few years away before that's doable. But uh, this this science is moving so quickly. But blue eyes, red hair, stuff like that, or can you already do that if you were if, – if, if, forget about the ethics of it. I just want to know scientifically, they can already do that? Yeah. Wow. Do that. That's pretty amazing. Uh, let me ask you, Doc, before I let you go, I really appreciate you giving us your time on a Friday. And we're speaking to Professor uh, – or sorry, we're speaking to Dr. David Sinclair, who's a – well, he is a professor, too, at Harvard Medical School, and he's co-director of the Glenn Center for Aging Research. What are we learning about aging? How are we learning to prevent some of the ill effects of aging? Well, we started out 20 years ago when I was a kid um, in, in a lab trying to figure out what makes little animals live longer, like worms and little fruit flies. Uh, we've come a long way to now where we, we know which genes in the human body contribute to longer life and 
staying disease-free and staying out of nursing homes. And there was a, a big push in my field, um, and my, myself included, to find medicines that people could start taking, say, in their 40s to make sure that they don't get cancer or heart disease until much later in life, perhaps over the age of 100. And, and where, where have we found out? I mean, are we, is that already happening? Uh, well, there's a number of clinical trials. Um, there are drugs that are in development, have been in humans, seem to be safe. And, uh, yeah, so it's just around the corner, too, we think. All right. Dr. David Sinclair of Harvard Medical School. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating stuff. We really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Buck. Team, Freestyle Friday is always awesome. See what I'm saying? Learning all kinds of interesting stuff. That was crazy. He's talking about woolly mammoths. I'm like, I did want to ask, yo, when can we make the saber-toothed tiger come back? Because that was one of my favorites as a kid. But I didn't want to be that guy. Well, I guess I'm being that guy right now. All right, team, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. Team Buck, we got a couple of calls coming in. Want to take them. Chris in Pennsylvania, W-A-E-B. What's on your mind, sir? Hey, good. Hey, hey there. Uh... Hey. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. We can all hear you. I'm uh, sorry. I was shifting to my, uh, getting off my speakerphone because I know you guys don't like that. No, but it's all good. I was calling to congratulate you on the new gig. Um, I, I drive Uber all the time, and uh, previously in this spot, I was listening to Megan McCain, and uh, and uh, I just wanted to call and say uh, congratulations on your new show. Thank you very much. How are you enjoying the show, uh, the show so far, I hope? I, I love it. I love it. Um, I, I, I liked Megan a lot, but she started to get a little um, – she had a lot of liberal guests on, and I didn't really enjoy that a whole lot, so – Enjoying your uh, form. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you this: you won't have a lot of liberal guests here. <laughs> so that's that is yes, that is one definitely. promise I can make to you and and all the other folks out there. Not a lot of not that I wouldn't have them on, but they're very slow to to talk to me. I'm so nice, but if they're wrong, I'll tell them and I'll win. So that's how it goes. Uh, Chris in Pennsylvania, yep. thank you very much for calling in. Felix, also in Pennsylvania, also on WAEB. Yes, sir. Hey, Buck, I got a, a dog story to tell you. It's I love it. It's a story it. that my mother and my, and my aunts had told. My parents actually both grew up in World War II Nazi Germany. And where my mother grew up, uh, well, where she lived, they were subject to the air raids, you know, to the, the Allied bombings. Wow, okay. Anyway, they had this, uh, they had this little dachshund. And uh, one day the air raid uh, sirens went off. So everyone went to go to the, you know, the air raid shelter that they usually went to. Well, the dog was there. It was barking, and it was growling and biting at people not to let them near. And they said, this was awfully strange. So they decided, okay, they went to a different one. Well, as it turned out, that shelter took a direct hit and was completely destroyed. Wow. So the dog saved their lives. <laughs> the dog saved their lives, the psychic dog. That's, that's amazing. Look, now, do- dogs do have... Senses and sensibilities and percep- uh, you know, perceptive uh, skills that are you know, that are specific to dogs. I mean, you go back; all the research now shows that the the human canine relationship is the oldest of all human animals. Before we had you know animal husbandry, before you had uh, cattle and horse, uh, way before we were riding around on horses, uh, we've had dogs. Back from when we were living in caves and hoping that a saber-toothed tiger didn't come eat us, a little a little canine friend would would bark, and they've been very useful. So, dogs and humans have been uh, a, a you know 
a team stretching back for as long as, well, even before there was written history, and as long as we've been able to trace back uh, groups of hunter-gatherers, as I understand it, running around as people. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think uh, it's very interesting to see what dogs can pick up. I, I've even seen recently, um, I've even seen recently that dogs are uh, able to understand like two hundred words or something like that. They they have a vocabulary. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I've always had dogs. I've had German Shepherds mostly. And now I have a chocolate lab and a German Shepherd. And, I mean, they've just – I love my dogs. As a matter of fact, me and my wife one time, we did a little custody battle with one of our dogs and just for fun. And uh, she was standing on one end of the room with a treat, and I was standing on the other room without a treat. And the dog, of course, chose to come to me. <laughs> oh, that's how you guys dis- – okay. It, all right. Um, Felix. <laughs> well, we didn't get divorced. Okay. It was just it, it was just something we did for fun. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. It wasn't actually a custody battle. It's like it's like your some people it's like they're they're trying to decide who gets custody of their child and the dog is a very important uh, uh very important family family member. Um thank you for calling in, Felix. I appreciate it. Shields high. Hey Buck, have a good weekend. Yeah, man, you too. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh yeah, dogs. I remember I remember uh when I was applying to schools and I applied to one school in particular for college. And I didn't get in, and I remember being so disappointed. And the family Boston Terrier, Dixie, who was the cutest, most awesome little dog ever. Boston Terriers have become much more popular now as a breed, at least. You see them more in pop culture and ads. And when I was growing up, we had a Boston Terrier. I think she lived to be about 13 or 14 years old. And I was... I you know when you're in high school you don't get into the you know it was the first school the school I wanted to go to but you don't get to the school you want to go to uh, really stings and I will never forget I was sitting there at the table and she came over and she had never done this before and never done it since she came over to me I was sitting there I just gotten the rejection letter the thank you so much for applying but you know we blah blah you stink uh, <laughs> no no soup for you. Um, and and the dog came up to me, Dixie. She came over, and she wrapped herself, took her body and wrapped herself around my feet in like a horseshoe shape, and just stayed there, just stayed there with me, keeping my feet and my ankles warm. I've n- never seen her do it to anyone. I never seen her do it before. Then she never did it to me after then. But she knew that I was really bummed out and felt like the world you know now just like who cares yeah college it's all the same it's all overpriced four years nonsense just a lot of drinking and socializing i don't care where you go to school yeah i'll say it um we'll have to talk about college another time everybody undergrad programs should be two years long you should have to work before you go to college for at least a year or two or serve in the military or serve your country in some fashion i know i'm starting a whole other discussion like 10 seconds everybody team buck have a fantastic weekend Uh, Excited to join you all next week every day. Until then, Shields High.